welcome once again to Cinemaholics. From the San Francisco Bay Area, I'm John Negroni, Chief Editor of Cinemaholics.com, and I also write for The Young Folks, The School, and a new outlet as of this week, Abby Will. I, I wrote something for Awards Watch. Hey, congrats. There it is. Yeah, it's very Thanks. exciting. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, maybe we'll talk about it a little bit more later. But first, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend, and he also writes for Cinemaholics. It's Will Ashton. Hello, hello. From Kansas City, Missouri, she is a freelance writer and film editor for The Pitch Magazine. Her bylines include RogerEver.com, Slash Film, Crooked Marquee, and the brick wall behind the school that is filled with movie-related graffiti. It's Abby Chessy. Hello. Sorry, I just accused you of vandalism. I've been I've been accused of worse, so don't worry about it. You can find more episodes of Cinemaholics, including our full archive on Cinemaholics.com, including written reviews and other bonus content. You can write into the show anytime by emailing us. Our email, as always, is cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you all. And if you'd like to support this podcast and help us keep the fun going, please head on over to patreon.com slash cinemaholics. We also have Cinemaholics merch you can purchase on our website, cinemaholics.com. So go get yourself a hoodie, a mug, a t-shirt, or maybe even a shot glass. Links to everything I just mentioned are in the show notes per usual. So for off topics, got to kick things off with a declaration that the gang is back together after, uh, I feel like it's been a month since we all three of us were in the same podcasting room. It's true. It's been a while because I think you guys were both at Sundance. And so mm-hmm. I hosted with Kimber and then I was unable to be with both of you, I think the week before that and also the week after that. So yeah, it's been like three weeks and we're, we're finally, we're finally back together. It's exciting. It's, it's very exciting. It's like a whirlwind of changes, you know, in 2021, but we're, we're kind of sync. Yeah, Abby, I'm, I'm upset a little bit because for two things, last week we forgot to like announced that it was our season five premiere, our fifth year Cinemaholics begins. We forgot to say that, but I think subconsciously it's because it didn't feel right saying it until you were here. Ah, shucks. So, welcome to season five of Cinemaholics, everybody. Yeah. And, uh, I think I think this is like the, the first official week, let's say that. But yeah, glad, glad you're all here and uh, I hope you're all doing all right. We have too many review, like films to get to. You know, we were, we were kind of like, we had conversations and conversations about what to actually review this weekend because I think something like 13 movies came out Valentine's Day weekend. We're recording this on Valentine's Day. Um, so congrats, by the way, we're each other's Valentines, at least uh, in the podcasting world. But yeah, what I don't know. Do, do any of you have like theories for why everything just like dropped out of nowhere like this? I don't know. I think part of it might be... Uh... I mean, it might be the fact that it's Valentine's Day weekend and that people normally would want to go out. And like this time last year, we were still able to go out. Um, so I don't know. I think in the case of at least one of the movies that we're going to talk about later on, um, it's, I think, great, great timing because it's such a bummer of uh, of a time of year having being like being stuck inside. And for most of the country, myself included, yeah. uh, it's like sub-zero temperatures and you can't leave your house even if you wanted to. So uh, yeah, it's, I mean, maybe they were planning it, maybe not, but I feel like it's, it's ended up being a good thing either way. Yeah. I was going to say, I think it's primarily Valentine's day weekend because a lot of the movies that we got are fairly romantic or at least have some sort of like romance involved with them. But I also think it's because it's a four day weekend for some people because of president's day on Monday. So that's right, yeah, I, I think that's also part of it. 
I'm not hundred percent sure, but um, that would be my guess at least. Other otherwise, I don't exactly know. But here we are. It's clear to me that Hollywood created this snowstorm that, like, even Seattle is snowed in just because they wanted us to watch a bunch of movies. Which, you know, if that's the case, oh, I'm fine with that. I love watching movies actually. Um, I, although in the Bay Area, no snow for us as usual. We're just sort of staying home because we do that anyway. Um, but yeah, uh, some of the some of the films that are out this weekend that we're not talking about until next week include Minari. Uh, we want to talk about Minari, but you know, obviously that's a big release. Uh, that said, there were so many other things we decided we should probably save that for next week. Make sure it gets its due. Uh, another film we're going to put off until next week is Land, the Robin Wright directed film, her directorial debut on film. And uh, th- there's just a few other films that they're just not going to make the cut. There's a couple that came out like a few weeks ago that like we thought about maybe covering um, The Dig, which came out on Netflix, uh, kind of a lovely Carrie Mulligan, Ray Fine movie that uh, I-, I kind of enjoyed. Uh, I wanted to talk about it, but it's just we just we just have so much to get to. There's also Bliss, which I think all three of us saw the Owen Wilson, Salma Hayek movie that uh, I don't think uh, any of us enjoy. <laughs> Is that fair to say? I definitely didn't. It was, yeah, you can mm-hmm. read my review of it, full review on Crooked Marquee, but I, I gave it a pretty bad review. I did too for The Spool. Um, I think I said that uh, like I, I like the script was something like a, the first draft of a, an essay from like a college sophomore or something like that. That's exactly what it felt like. <laughs> what, what about you, Will? I, I feel, we've talked about Bliss, but I feel like I feel like you haven't said too many negative things about it. Is that because you you appreciate it maybe to some degree? Am I reading into that? I don't think so. I mean, I was not too far off from where you are, at least. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just ultimately found it to be fairly disappointing. But I think because I delayed it, like I didn't finish it until yesterday. I kept like putting it off because I was like, maybe it's going to get good because there's certain points of it where I'm like, OK, this is kind of intriguing. Like that's a direction I wasn't fully anticipating. It was like, OK, maybe maybe I'm just not giving this the full credit yet. Like, I, I think I wanted to reserve my uh, criticisms until I saw the whole thing. And then I did. And I'm like. Yep, that was basically what I thought it was going to be, uh, which is unfortunate. But uh, yeah. the, the cameos were fun. It. Um, I I didn't realize until after I read your review that it was supposed to be a romance. Um, I, I I guess that speaks to the lack of chemistry between Owen Wilson and Selma Hayek in it. But <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty bad. Um, yeah, so I guess it's pretty safe to say we did, we didn't care for it. We're not really going to have much of a review for it. Uh, there was one thing that we did. Uh, come out with a bonus review of you might have caught it on your feed but a crime scene vanishing at the cecil hotel came out on netflix and that was kind of a surprise netflix hit uh, it's like a four-part docu-series from joe berlinger and uh, i actually it was kind of impromptu but i got to set up a wonderful podcast discussion with chris wagner a freelance writer for new york times la times a bunch of other places and so we talked about that and yeah it just feels like this week so many things kept coming out. I was watching things like every single day and I still feel like I'm not even close to like seeing everything this week had to offer, but that's probably for the best. We got to, we got to draw the line somewhere. But that said, uh, we did a voicemail question last week. Abby, you missed it. So we wanted to do a part two. Uh, we asked the listeners, do you still watch movie trailers? We played two voicemails last week. So we're going to play another one this week, but first I want to hear from you, Abby Elchesti, you know, the conversation last week was basically like, in the era of COVID, like I was kind of talking about how I just, I don't see a need to watch movie trailers, like mainly because we do the show. Like I don't, I'm not stuck in a theater where like I'm forced to sit through trailers and I feel like I've gotten used to it. Like it's felt kind of nice 
to not be watching the same trailers over and over again because like more movies are becoming more surprising to me. And I kind of, I've been going out of my way to not really look into movies before seeing them, getting that sort of like festival surprise on a pretty regular basis. But uh, that was kind of my take on it. And Will, it's not, you kind of had something similar to say about it. Um, you know, not that we dislike trailers, but like, uh, what, what do you think, Abby? I want to hear from you and then we'll, we'll hear from a listener of the show. Yeah, um, that's a good question. I feel like I... I still watch trailers pretty regularly, um, at least because it helps me kind of determine pretty quickly whether or not it's a thing that I want to review. Like if I'm if I'm if I'm going into like assignment time for an outlet and they ask you which movie do you want to review, usually it helps give me some context to watch that stuff. Um, I don't actively seek them out though as much as I used to pre. COVID. I think I actually did enjoy watching trailers in the theaters, even if they were for the same thing over and over again, uh, just because there was the possibility that something might surprise you like that you didn't realize was coming out. Um, but these days it just feels like it's kind of become part of the, like, I'm, I'm more likely to read about a new release probably than I am to actually watch the trailer. Yeah. I feel like I'm basically in the same boat. You know, we played voicemails last week that were kind of like saying the thing that a lot of us have talked about where it just feels like trailers are total recaps of the films themselves. And uh, yeah, it's like, I already know I'm going to watch these films. I especially try to avoid, I don't think I mentioned this last week, but I try to avoid the second trailer more than anything else. Because like the first trailer, it's usually like not quite a teaser, but it's pretty good about not revealing too many things, you know? Whereas like trailer two tends to be the, okay, this one has got to like get people to watch. I think a good example is I didn't watch trailer two for Barb and Sargo to Vista Del Mar. So I don't know how the trailer two for that worked, but the first trailer for that movie, I think is like what all trailers should be like because it gives nothing away. It doesn't even show their faces, but it definitely like gets you interested in like what that movie is going to be. And I know we're going to talk about Barb and Star in a moment, but I think that's, that is the way to do trailers. I think, for, especially for a movie like that. I think in theory it is, but I don't think the trailer for that movie really sells it. Because <laughs> I remember my vivid memory of the trailer for Barb and Star Go Vista Del Mar was seeing it on Christmas Day for um, Rise of Skywalker. And the reaction was just two and a half minutes of dead silence. Like nobody was like angry or like outspoken about how they felt. They just were just like, all right, well, that's a thing. And now we're moving on to the next trailer. <laughs> so I don't I don't think I really like sold the movie from what I can tell. Because I, I, I've talked to people about it and they're always kind of like, I don't know, like that trailer didn't really get me invested. But I agree, like from a uh, conceptual standpoint that that I'd, I'd much rather have a trailer like that that doesn't tell you much of anything about the film than something that gives away. Yeah. Or give away the jokes. Right. Because usually trailers right. have like the best jokes in the movie, like in the trailer. And that is not the case for Barb and Star. I don't think it had hardly any of the really good jokes in there. Yeah, I would agree. I'm I'm curious to talk more about the the marketing for this when we get to the full review because I I understand why they withhold so much in both trailer one and trailer two, but also I think I agree with Will in that neither of them really get you that excited to watch the movie. Um, I think there's like maybe one element that made me think that it could potentially be really fun, but it was it was fairly small. So we'll we'll talk about that in a bit. Interesting. Okay. Uh, the interesting opinions coming at us then. Uh, okay. So we're going to play this voicemail from one of our listeners, Taylor, who sent us a voicemail before. Here's what Taylor had to say about watching movie trailers. I think that when I was going to the movies once or twice a week, I definitely had a desire to seek out movie trailers a lot more. 
uh, I would always make sure that I got to the theater in time just to watch the trailers. I found them to be exciting. And on the big screen, you know, it's the first sort of taste you get uh, of some of these larger than life films that come out. And I felt that over the last year, I've watched a lot less, sort of like you. And I think that part of that is because I've always sort of related trailers and the movie going experience with one another. Uh, I was never really keen on ever watching it on like a small phone screen. But also, I just think the movies from this past year have been pretty bad, like generally. Um, found very few that have changed my mind. And that's not to say that there aren't more. I'm sure that there are. But uh, with everything that just went on last year and how a lot of stuff just sort of halted to a stop, I just was really underwhelmed, you know, and I think that that sort of carried over into the lack of trailers or into the quality of the trailers. I just thought it was a pretty poor year for films. Uh, so, you know, I'm not going to hate on anybody for that. I mean, it was pretty obvious why things developed the way that they did. But uh, I, I watched the Godzilla trailer the other day and the very first thing that came to my head was, God, I wish I saw this on a big screen. And until I have that back in my life, movie trailers just don't hit the same. All right. So thank you, Taylor, for responding. And uh, yeah, I mean, a little bit of a hot take because I know I don't agree that the, the year of film is terrible. I know Taylor has talked about talked with us before. I know he's seen a lot of good stuff. He just didn't like as many things compared to what we did. Uh, but it is interesting to like bring up the, the Godzilla versus Kong trailer, which I went out of my way not to watch. Um Mainly because, yeah, I guess it's the kind of thing that, like, if I'm not going to see the trailer on a big screen right before a movie, I guess I don't, you know, we did talk about this last week a little bit, too, where, like, there's that whole cottage industry around, like, trailer reactions online, and I'm just not, like, into it, honestly, but I don't know. What do, what do you think, Abby? What's your what's your take? I Yeah, I, I'm not in agreement either that last year was bad for a film. I, I think there were quite a few that I liked a lot, but, uh, I mean, that you know, mileage may vary depending on how you feel about some of the movies that we liked so much. Um, I, I did watch the Godzilla versus Kong trailer mostly because most of film Twitter was reacting to it. And I felt like I would be out of the loop if I didn't, but, uh, it was good, but yeah, I, I agree that I would have preferred to see that on a big screen. I think that's going to go for the movie too, obviously. Um, that's, that's the kind of thing that's going to play best on like the largest screen you can possibly handle. Um, so there is, I think, a certain amount of it's like it's a mixed bag of feelings because you're excited that you're going to get it at all and that it's not like this carrot that's being like perpetually moved down the line um but the other side of that is that like you know you're probably not going to get to see it in the theater and it would be it would be a lot more fun if you could safely so all that is to say you know if you really are that excited about watching Godzilla versus Kong in a theater maybe rent it out. It's not that expensive, actually. You can probably get a group of friends to safely distance within an auditorium and see it yourself. So there are ways around it. Yeah. It's just a little, un, you know, a little unorthodox. Here's hoping that, you know, by the time my birthday comes around in like October of this year, I'm going to be able to do that, like run out of theater and maybe like COVID won't even be like bad enough anymore that we have to do stuff like that. Who knows? But uh, okay. Will Ashton, uh, we'll give you the last word on this. Anything else you want to address before we, we leave this topic behind us and we, we go back to our, our movie review show? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about the Godzilla versus Kong trailer, is it 
Godzilla versus Kong or Kong versus Godzilla? I keep getting them mixed up. I think it's Godzilla versus Kong. Godzilla versus they, Kong. They know the they know the money shot. They know the sure. brand. Yeah, I mean, for me, like when I saw a trailer, I had a similar reaction. I was just like, I I need to see this on the big screen. I'm trying to figure out how I can do that. Like Abby said, like, I don't know if I have to like rent a theater or if I have to go to the drive-in or something. But it's like I'm not like I'm not watching this at home. Like I, I just this is not a movie that's meant to be seen like on my TV. Like if I can figure out a way to safely see this on a big screen I, i'm going to pursue it but um at this point yeah it's just like i i think i would have actually been okay if that one got delayed because i was like if it if it meant seeing it later down the line in a way that i don't have to think about these things i think i would have preferred that as opposed to having earlier access to it but i do agree that, that was one of the few trailers i've seen recently where it got me juiced up again and i was like okay yeah this is like what it felt like to go to the movies and to see something like this that's like blaring out the speakers and just being a full like auditorium experience and to experience that uh at home and knowing i'm not going to probably see the trailer on the big screen anytime soon is pretty disheartening but that's the way things are right now and that's how they're going to be for at least a little bit so i gotta get used to it but hey wait what about the Zack Snyder trailer? Did you have that? Okay, no, we're not going to talk about that. We I live in a society, John. Yeah, yeah, I saw that part. Yeah, that's <laughs> I haven't. Much I haven't seen it, so I don't know. I don't. I, I'm telling you, I don't watch these things. Um, yeah. But yeah, maybe maybe one of our next uh, voicemail questions will be about director's cuts. That could be fun. But okay, that'll do it for off topics. Let's move into our first review of the week. Let's talk about Judas and the Black Messiah. I want to share something with you. Like the masses, I was in awe when I first laid eyes on all the things you are. I heard that speech. I knew we make noise. I just thought it'd be in the streets. The Black Panthers are the single greatest threat to our national security. Our counterintelligence program must prevent the rise of a Black Messiah. You're looking at 18 months for the stolen car, five years for impersonating a federal officer, or you can go home. What do you want? Get close to Hampton. The Black Panthers are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color. Neutralize him by any means necessary. America's on fire right now. And until that fire is extinguished, nothing else means a damn thing. Imagine what we could accomplish together. We can heal this whole city. You ain't tell me it was gonna be like this. These ain't no terrors. We got a rat, man. Does anybody else know about me? No one knows your identity. Are you sure? We educate. We nurture, we feed, and we lobby. Perhaps we're here for more than just war with these bodies. We scream, and we shout, and we live by this anthem. But it's power to the people really worth their ransom. When I dedicated my life to people, I dedicated my life. You get to go out there and talk about dying a revolutionary death because you don't have another person growing inside your body. Anyway, there's people. There's power. Judas and the Black Messiah is a new 
biographical drama. I think I think it counts as that. It's a two-hander, though. Uh, we're looking at two very important lives in the Black Panther Party movement from the late 1960s. This film is directed by Shaka King. Uh, screenplay is from Will Burson, and Shaka King co-wrote it. And it stars Daniel Kaluuya as Fred Hampton, who was the Chicago chairman of the Black Panthers back in uh, it, was, it was the late sixties. I forget how many years he was their chairman, but the film itself takes place uh, over the course of like 1968, 1969, and it goes over Fred Hampton's uh, rise in and infamy in that part of Chicago in this political movement where the civil rights era has just seen the the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And the Black Panthers are a very avant-garde, uh, politically polarized group that is actually seeing a lot of success. They're unifying people, specifically with Fred Hampton in Chicago, bringing people together who you wouldn't expect uh, to, to come together. Uh, this is based on true events, but the film is also and arguably mainly about the downfall of Fred Hampton because of the Judas in this scenario. The Judas being a man named William O'Neill, played here by Lakeith Stanfield, uh, in order to avoid jail time for impersonating a federal officer. An FBI agent, played by Jesse Plemons, actually recruits Lakeith Stanfield, and he offers him a deal. He says, if you infiltrate the Black Panthers, feed us information, and uh, sensibly take down the Black Panthers from within, he doesn't have to go to jail for, I think it's something like five years. And from there, the film goes over his infiltration into this group, how he becomes one of their leaders, earns Fred Hampton's trust, and then all of the chaos that comes out of that. This is a huge, incredible cast. We also have Dominique Fishback as Deborah Johnson, who is a, a love interest, a girlfriend of Fred Hampton. We kind of see how they meet up for the first time. Uh, we also have Martin Sheen in... I, I, it's kind of mean, but it's kind of clown makeup. He's playing uh, J. Edgar Hoover in one of the more one-dimensional roles, honestly. And uh, it's a lot of other people. We'll, we'll probably talk about the cast as we go, but we really get a glimpse, like an intimate glimpse of Chicago at this time. Uh, this film has been getting a lot of awards attention. It premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. It's eligible, I think, for for some awards. I, I forget if it if it is going to be able to get anything for Academy Awards. Uh, I know for Sundance, it, wasn't, it didn't qualify for anything because it was too late of an edition. That said, uh, this is looking like it's going to be one of the buzziest, critics-friendly films of the year. So what did we think about it? Starting with you, Abby Olchesi. Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, how long ago did you see this? And uh, I, I have no idea what you think of it yet. Yeah, I actually just got to see it uh, on on release on Friday. Basically, um, I, I had some opportunities to uh, to try and see it before release, but it just schedule wise didn't work out. But I was happy I got to see this. Um, I, yeah, I'm happy I got to see this on release. It's it's a really good movie. Um, I feel like we're kind of building a uh, like Chicago 1968 cinematic universe with this one um because we had yeah. uh trial of the chicago seven come out last year and uh fred hampton's death obviously is part of that film uh and this film also alludes to the ongoing uh trial it like refers to bobby seal at one point so like obviously those are those are things happening in tandem um so you know i wouldn't be i wouldn't be adverse to more more movies exploring that particular period in history as a former chicagoan myself i I love getting to get some some context into a city where I used to live. Um, 
I also enjoyed watching this. Uh, I, I can recommend a couple of things. I mean, one is is Trial of the Chicago 7, which I, for some of the things that it doesn't do well, there are some things that it does very well, and that's worth checking out. Uh, the other is a documentary that came out a few years ago called The Black Panther's Vanguard of the Revolution, which aired on uh, PBS, I think, around like 2014. Yeah, yeah it's really good. Um, and that was, I yeah, think, it was like f- 2015, I think. Yeah, yeah. That was the first time that I had ever heard, I think, of, of Fred Hampton, really, in any um, in any larger context. And actually, really, the the first time that I was exposed to like the reality of the the Black Panther movement. Um, as as the, is, I think, also the case with a lot of uh, white kids who grew up in smaller towns and had white people teaching their history classes, uh, the perspective that we got on the Black Panthers was pretty slanted and pretty limited. And so it's always great to see um, pieces of, of art, uh, dramatic documentary or otherwise, that uh, really give them more context and uh, show these people as, like, the... the well-intentioned and uh, multifaceted revolutionaries that they were instead of just people to be feared. Um, and there was, there was a lot that I learned in this movie too, that I hadn't, hadn't known about previously. I hadn't known about um, Bill O'Neill. I didn't know about the the shootout, but I hadn't known about the events leading up to that. Um, I didn't know about the whole rainbow coalition and how really incredibly impressive that was. Um, we see um, Fred Hampton in the oh, yeah. movie working with, yeah, uh, with, like area, like actual, like with gangs, with uh, like black groups, Puerto Rican groups, uh, a group of uh, white supremacist leftists that he manages to kind of call over to the the Black Panther yeah. um, cause by yeah, like by by appealing the young patriots, to patriots. I think they were called the yeah the young patriots uh, by appealing to like their common uh, experience of oppression at the hands of of the police and the system, um, which is fascinating. And particularly right now, a fascinating thing to consider. Um, I think this, I, I did look up the the Young Patriots group and they were more left-leaning than some of the groups that are currently in existence. But um, I think the idea of that is a really interesting one to present like right now. Um, and there's there's a lot going on in this movie that I think is is interesting. There's also like the the fact that in, in the title itself, Judas and the Black Messiah, um, there are a lot of elements within the movie that that lend themselves to that kind of biblical messiah narrative that we can probably get into in a little bit that I also really appreciated. Sorry, I'm kind of long-winded on this one, but I liked it a lot. No, I really want to talk about that because that's I th- I think like that that angle of it is really fascinating. The political angle is like endlessly fascinating to me because there's always there's a lot of conversation about how politics has shifted since the 1960s and like nowadays it's considered like very right leaning to be libertarian for some reason where like libertarian philosophy goes back to like mainly Marx. Like it's really complicated and it's, there's a lot of nuance to it. And I think sometimes we, we do get that like one dimensional take from our history books, particularly about the black Panthers, because yeah, similar to you, we're sort of taught the black Panthers were basically like terrorists and same way people are taught that like BLM is like a terrorist group. And there's a lot of like mania around uh, civil rights. Whenever these things bottle up a lot, this movie is kind of about how you know, power systems set themselves up and create uh, ways to bring these groups down because they fear them. And they fear them for for reasons that are, 
this movie actually makes kind of clear, I think, and, and succeeds in displaying like why the FBI would want to go to such great lengths to essentially sanction um, some her- like atrocity. Now, we won't give away exactly what happens, of course, but it is history. A lot of you listening party probably already know what happened. I didn't know the specifics, though, uh, particularly something that happens toward the end of the film is really, really closely aligned with what actually went down. And I just, I appreciate the attention to detail in this film. It takes a lot of creative liberties, but in ways, uh, particularly with Lakeith Stanfield's performance and how he like handles um, this this conflicted guy who, you know, history kind of says wasn't as conflicted or kind of gives a different impression of that. This film offers a bit of an alternative take that I think is interesting. But uh, Will, you know, you you saw this as well at Sundance. I, I yep. know that you... You definitely were like championing it during the festival, mm-hmm. but it's it's been a little while since uh, we both saw it. So, so what do you think looking back? And uh, do you, do you uh, think highly of this one? Oh yeah, I mean, I still think very highly of the film. Um, I think, like I said back when I saw it, that this is kind of a miracle that this movie exists, at least from the studio standpoint. Like we're talking about the same studio that only like ten years prior released Jay Edgar from the Clint Eastwood movie, and just like the fact that we have a movie like this yeah. that is so openly damning of the FBI and the systems like that, that it it allows itself to be so angry and so forthright with what it's trying to say without holding itself back, without feeling the need to hold itself back. I think that's pretty fascinating in and of itself. But I also think like you two are saying that the movie itself just on its own terms just works really, really well Um, from a directing standpoint, especially, but also uh, from our two lead performers. And that's not to short sight the other performances, like we said, Dominique Fishback and Jesse Plemons, I think, are also very good in this. And I really like what they're able to do in their sporting roles. Um, I, I do agree. I think Martin Sheen, I think he does the best way he's able to do. But he does have that like penguin makeup throughout, which is pretty distracting because, like you said, it's John, unfortunate. Um, this movie, it, it takes some a takes some a efforts to be as truthful as possible without sacrificing a lot of the uh, entertainment value, which is, I think, pretty impressive as well. But um, yeah, just like I think his performance, he does the best he can, but there is like this kind of cartoonishness to it that's unfortunate because not only is it out of line with the rest of the film, but it does kind of rob it of some of its authenticity. It is a bit of a one note character in this film, which I think is fine. Like it serves its purpose. But at the same time, I think the fact that it is going against everything that the movie is doing well, that's unfortunate. But I mean, I think by and large, that criticism is pretty minor in the scheme of things, because like I said, I think everything that's working with the film is working really well. And I think it's complementing one another. If anything, I think that the movie is ultimately a bit uh, short sighted because it's only, I think, like 126 minutes. It goes really fast, but it does feel like they have to kind of uh, gloss over some things or kind of have to address things openly without really diving into them because there's so much to impact with this story that I think they could only really kind of get to the the core aesthetics of it, which is fine because it's, you know, it's like, a like you said, like a two handler, it's uh, two life stories told at the same time. And it, it's kind of hard to do that in full detail, even at um, about 130 minutes altogether. But like I said, I think what works here really does work. I think it's a well-packed movie and I, I, I definitely got a lot out of it. And like I said, I'm just glad that it came from the studio system and it got as big of a budget as it did. And I'm really excited to see where Shaka King goes from here because this is a really impressive sophomore film. I believe it's sophomore. I, don't, I forget uh, if Newlyweeds was his first film or a sophomore film, but nevertheless, uh, definitely has a great future ahead of him. And I'm really excited to see where he goes from here. I think you're, yeah, I think you're right. I think this is the sophomore film, but I uh, could be wrong about that. Uh, regardless, yeah, this is a, a huge high profile release for him and uh, clearly, yeah, a bright future ahead. I, I was going to say too, I, I think you, you touch on something that I was also feeling as well, which is that 
they do have a lot of other stories here that kind of fall to the wayside at points. I think like Jermaine Fowler, for example, has this kind of role that I feel like would have been a lot more affecting if it, if we had been able to really like see a little bit more of that guy and get a little bit more of a story. I think like Dominique Thorne, uh, keep your eye out for her because she gets like two really crucial scenes in this movie and they're both very heightened. One of them is like this very tense like interrogation scene that I was like, no wonder she's playing Ironheart in uh, the Marvel movies because she is going to like absolutely nail it. But then also the shootout that she gets to be part of where like she just kind of like dominates the screen despite not really having a ton of dialogue. She just does it all through performance. Similarly, like Dominique Fishback, who does have a, a good amount of dialogue, she is kind of in that trope a little bit of like the concerned girlfriend, you know, and uh, I think that like the movie kind of like wavers on how successfully it handles it because she does she is somebody who like spars with fred hampton really like is her his foil in a good way and it, it does a lot to establish like you know their their love story and everything but i don't know i think this movie is so focused on fred hampton and bill o'neill i kind of wonder like would it have been a even better ensemble or is it a good balance as it is uh i'm not sure actually yeah i'd say I, I think it works best at like looking at that dynamic between the two of them. I do think that there are some, there, there are a lot of side plots here and a lot of those I think are, they're important to telling the story of the black Panthers and that struggle. Um, but you're right. They do kind of get, uh, they do kind of get shifted to the side a little bit to the point where there are a few like really dramatic things that happen late in the film. And it can be a little tough to remind yourself who these people are specifically. Um, but it's still, I mean, it, it still has a lot of impact. Um, I will also say that I feel like we didn't get, I mean, for, for as much as the focus is on uh, Lakeith Stanfield's performances as Bill O'Neill for like a good chunk of the movie, we don't know that much about him apart from, just like the basics that were given, like his, his criminal background and the way that he interacts with, uh, with Jesse Plemons. Um, but we, we do get a lot more of, of Fred Hampton's background, which makes sense. Um, but there were a couple points in the movie where I thought, you know, if we're getting this much focus on the person who is going to be betrayed, I would like to know just as much about the person who is going to betray him, like a little more emotionally and, uh, you know, something that kind of backs up the stuff that we get to see. Yeah, I mean, that's a criticism I had when I saw the film. And thinking back on it, I think because the movie is trying to be sticking to the truth as much as possible, I think William O'Neill, from what I can tell, was kind of a reserved guy and that we don't like there's like a lot of things I think they didn't want to assume or like kind of put in there to like speculate too much. So I, I had that similar criticism, but I'm kind of willing to forgive that. I think for that reason, but I wasn't sure if that was something you two felt about that. I'm in the same place, actually. I I because I thought that, too, but I was like, well, if they did reveal too much, it almost would feel like they're manufacturing sympathy for this guy where I don't think it probably factually exists. And I think could actually be a bit offensive to, uh, you know, what his deal was. And I think there's actually something kind of scarier about like a person who's really just doing this, not because, you know, his upbringing was like particularly challenging, which you could frame in a way to make him more sympathetic, but really because he was just looking out for himself and he decided that his own interests were more important and to me i think like the way the film plays out and what you see of him toward the end of the film i think is all the more resonant even though i i do it is it's conflicting because i do also feel that like i do want to understand this person more <laughs> i do want to like wrap my head around and the fact that I can, it is it is frustrating but i wonder for me if that's like a good thing almost yeah and i think 
I, I think you're probably both right in that. I, I, part of my desire for that, I think, comes from some of the more biblical narrative type stuff that we get toward the end of the movie. Um, so like there are a couple of scenes where like, uh, right, like right leading up to the, the, the shootout where, where Hampton is, is killed. Um, there is a, a scene that's basically the last supper. Like it is, it is framed that way. And, uh, Bill O'Neill's behavior in that scene is framed that way. And his interaction with, uh, with Jesse Plemons, uh, right before that. And I think also right after that, is also super dramatic and also feels very, uh, very much in parallel with what we know of, of the, like, the character of Judas in the Bible. And I don't know, I, I, I find as, as a Christian, I find that narrative to be really powerful and interesting and full of potential nuance. And so when I see something like that presented in dramatic form, even if it's just like an analog, I, for whatever reason, like I want that psychology. Um, but historically I absolutely understand why it, it like, that's, that's a tough line to walk when you're dealing with actual characters and you're dealing with stakes that involve people that are, you know, that are still alive and legacies that are still kind of playing out and that are important to maintain. So that's, I think given, given the constraints that they had to work within, I still think it works really well. Yeah, like there, there is a scene in this movie where you see how the FBI agents really just disregard these people, and they really just like look down on them. And it, it's a lot about how like history like glosses over uh, a lot of the Christianity behind people like the Black Panthers, but because you know they were like outspoken socialists, there is this like binary like socialism is anti-Christian thing, even though like you know, these people were grounded in a lot of like biblical, like ethos that, you know, I think today, to this day, people have a lot of debates about the, uh, the line between like what, what capitalism means in a, in a Judeo-Christian society. And like, uh, I, I think that like having the Black Panthers challenge this is what kind of like, it does kind of like mirror, uh, the story of Jesus and like the, all of that, you know, that, that specific crucifixion that he went through because of his like challenge to the system or his like upending of the system. And I think it's, it's incredible that a film is this bold, that it's going to draw that comparison. And I guess the, the, the most surprising thing to me is that like something like this is coming out. And I wonder like kind of, you know, this was alluded to earlier, but like, this has come out like a 10, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Can you imagine like how many people would have found it so offensive and sacrilegious, but now today are sort of like, yeah, you know, like there's a little bit more, I don't know if that's more of a me thing. Maybe people are like upset about this movie. I just think it's, it's a matter of like, people don't know yet because the film hasn't really hit like as mainstream an audience. Um, I'm not sure which, which that is, but like I could absolutely see people finding the comparisons to be totally offensive to them because they, they definitely don't see like black Panthers, you know, uh, anywhere close to this kind of, uh, you know, morality or this sort of like biblical interpretation. But I don't know if I'm reading into that, to be honest. Well, that's what I'm, I was trying to get at before is that I just don't think like, like I said before, like, I don't think 10 years ago, this movie would have been made, at least not from Warner Brothers. Like, I just don't think there is even a conversation they would have had where they considered this a, as they did. And I think one thing that is worth mentioning is that I, I do think Ryan Coogler is fundamental to this movie coming out and having as big of a budget as it does. Like, I, I have to assume oh, yeah, he's a producer. His, as a producer, yeah, that he was fundamental to the movie having a fairly sizable budget and able to tell a story on this scale and i I think that's commendable i don't know that for sure but i have to assume with his clout you know coming off of you know creed and black panther that that has to be the case but 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know if like five years ago, the story would have been made from Warner Brothers. So, I mean, yeah, the fact that it is coming out, it's on the scale and in our opinion, it's as good as it is, I, I think is really commendable. I agree. I agree completely. Let's, uh, let's get that into our final thoughts then. Well, why don't, why don't you wrap that up from there then? Um, what's your, what are, what's your final thought on this and, uh, your grade for Judas and the Black Messiah? Yeah. I mean, like I said, I think by and large, I just think this is a really well-made film. If anything, I just kind of wish it was able to do more and, and have a little bit more time to tell its story. But I think as a compact 130 minute film, it, it does a lot and it does a lot really well. And I think like we said, Shaka King is really an outstanding director, especially if this is only his second film. I'm I'm really impressed to see where he goes. I'm I'm hoping he makes more movies in this vein. Like I'm worried that he's going to be uh, sucked up and and forced to make some like superhero movie, which I don't think he'll do a bad job or anything. But I'd much rather see personal stories like this told at a mid budget like this because these are becoming more and more rare from the studio system. And if we can get more movies like this, uh, I'm really hoping that's the case. But um, yeah, I mean, the only thing I think we haven't really mentioned I thought might have been uh, interesting is that I've heard some criticisms made that um, because uh, Daniel Kluwa and um, the key Sander, I think they're like both about 30 and the, the subject they play are about 10 years younger than that. I, I can see the criticism there. I, I don't really um, have as much of an issue with that because I think like we're saying, like I think that's going for like the kind of Jesus metaphor there because I think Jesus was about like 33, 34 when he died. And I think Dan Blue is about, yeah. that, about that age. So, I, I mean, I think there's, I think that that might be intentional. It just might be me reading too much into it based on our conversation. But I do wonder. I think it just came down to they were the right actors for it and they look young yeah. enough. You yeah. Because I, I know they were looking at Jaden Smith for this role. Oh, were they? I did not yeah. know that. Um, but I do wonder too, like if it, if it would have been even more hard hitting if it was like someone uh, that was like 20 or 21. Uh, the same age that uh, Fred Hampton was when he passed away. But um, yeah, I mean, like I said, by and large, I think my criticisms are fairly minor compared to what I think really does work well. And the fact that I'm glad that a movie like this has been made and made on the scale and made as well as it is. And uh, yeah, I mean, I really do hope that it gets some major work consideration because I think it's well-deserved, but uh, we'll have to find that out in, I guess, a month or two. So I'm a pretty firm and positive A- minus on this film. All right, yeah. Uh, I'm a firm A- minus as well. And I think it's... It's everything we've touched on. I think the the performances here are the reason to watch this film. You know, there, there's nothing about it I think that's like cinematically, in, you know, innovative. Like there wasn't really any part of the film that I found particularly like uh, creative or like it's not like they executed the film in a way that was really, you know, in your face, I guess. But it, everything it does, I think, is like really, really competent, really well done, very entertaining and gripping. It, it keeps, you know, it's it's the kind of film where you're thinking more about the performances and the writing than you are things like cinematography and action directing, anything like that. Although I, I do think that like the, the things that they do with like it's the few action scenes and the specific uh, scene toward the end that we've talked about is all like pulled off to like such incredible precision. I think that's probably the most impressive thing about it on a on a technical aspect, and also just I think the world building here is what really works. Like you really feel like you are in this place that you understand this part of Chicago and what it's going through in a pretty well rounded way. I think Abby, you spoke to how like those subplots do add a lot of context. They do like round out this world in a way that makes the main thread, main story here, all the more effective. So. Yeah, I'm a I'm a firm A minus on it as well, and I'm I'm glad. I think I think this uh, in terms of Daniel Kaluuya being cast, I think that this was a situation of like, yeah, he doesn't he doesn't look 
2021, but who cares? Because he's so good at this role, so we got to give it to him. That's that's my take. But uh, we'll finish with you, Abby Olchesi. Uh, what's your what's your final thought and grade? I think we might have a have a clean sweep of A minuses here. I think I'm in I'm in the same spot that you two are. I like this a lot. There are some things that I I wish could be a little bit different, maybe. Um, but I I recognize completely that given the like you know stuff like budget and historical considerations and length that they had to work with. I think everything works about, about as well as you could possibly expect it to be. Um, I think the, the two central performances are great. Daniel Kaluuya is like, he's got this energy that he brings to this role that is exactly what you want when you're like making a movie about, I think a revolutionary leader, he really commands the room and Keith Stanfield makes a great weasel. He's, he's a very, He's very good at the role that he's been given and uh, actually looks a little like the real Bill O'Neill as well, like enough to where it's like the the actual clips that you see of him being interviewed feel sort of seamless. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of it works really well. I agree that, uh, with you, John, that it is mostly, I think, a performance and writing based movie. And those are both really, really solid. Um, and the technical elements, I think, are pulled off to a really good degree. There's, yeah, you'll learn stuff. There's action in it. Um, and there's a lot of good dramatic push and pull between the two lead characters. So yeah, A minus from me. All right. I think it's pretty easy to average out the grades for this one. Um, so yeah, Judas and the Black Messiah, pretty pretty uh, easy recommendation from the three of us. You should definitely check it out. It is on HBO Max uh, simultaneously with a theatrical release. I do think that it's only on HBO Max for 30 days, so you don't have a ton of time uh, beyond that to see this one streaming. But if you can safely see this in a movie theater and uh, do so without uh, putting yourself or anybody else in harm's way, then please consider doing that. Okay, let's move on to our next film. And this one, I, I, you know, when I first saw To All the Boys I've Loved Before, who who thought this was going to be a trilogy, you know? Like maybe people who had read the book, and I, I don't know if the book even has like sequels, do they? It does, yeah. I'm, I'm, I have to assume that Netflix was thinking about this in terms of a trilogy. Like I, I think everything they do, they, they're thinking, could this be a trilogy? Um, so I, I, I'm not sure. surprised in the least that, that this became a trilogy. But nevertheless, considering how small scale the story is, uh, it is impressive that this is a trilogy. But I'll, I'll let you speak more to that right well, now. That's, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like you finish the first movie and like, Abby, you've only seen the first film. So it's just Will and I talking about this one. Um, and like, you have to be wondering to yourself, well, what else is there? <laughs> like, where does this story go from here? By the end of the first, we can lightly spoil the first film. It's it's mainly about uh, a young woman played by uh, Lana Condor. Uh, her character is Lara Jean, and she has written these love letters to her crushes over the years. They all get sent out by her precocious little sister, and then things happen, and she gets into this like fake relationship with Noah Centineo's character, Peter Kavinsky, and. I mean, come on, you know what the deal is that they're going to, you know, their fake relationship is maybe going to turn into a real one, isn't it? What? So, yeah. I watched Bridgerton. What? I know how this works. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah. Bridgerton be like, uh, you know, the formula must continue. Um, but yeah, Abby, uh, you saw you saw just the first one. What, what was your take on that film? I liked the first one fine. I thought it was cute. Uh, I am not against seeing uh numbers two and three i know they've gotten a pretty warm reception from from uh fans and critics alike i wouldn't call myself a a, a rabid to all the boys fan uh but i i appreciate it i think it's nice to have 
cute, fun, romantic things to watch on Netflix when you're feeling that way. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was my, like when I first saw the the first one, we were at a different time in 2018. We were coming off of like a rom-com drought. Not that there weren't rom-coms, but the, they just didn't have that. We, we were just starting to get the more like cozy rom-coms that are still kind of artistically interesting to some degree. You know, they're just a notch above like the Hallmark channel kind of thing that just feels aggressively safe, like insultingly safe. And I, I, I like that first one a lot. I think it's, it's the best of the trilogy just because it's the most complete standalone film. And I think that that gives it a lot of merit. Uh, the second film I thought was definitely a downgrade. I was like a B minus on it, you know, like not bad or anything. It just kind of goes to places that uh, I, to this day are debated between John Agroni and Will Ashton include, did she pick the right boy? You know, that kind of thing. I think Will, I don't want to give away your thoughts on that. Well, and I think, I, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I, I, I do think that John Ambrose was the way to go. And, you know, <laughs> Who am I to tell a young woman what she needs to do? But I mean, I, I think that was the better direction, in my opinion. Which I don't understand because we, Will Ashton has conceded on this very show that Noah Centineo's smile is enough to give a you know teenage Peter Parker radioactive spider powers. It's that powerful. Uh, regardless, uh, the, the second movie, of course, is just kind of a continuation of their love story. The third film, I think, is actually a bit better. So it actually kicks things off with uh we're, we're kind of in the senior year the spring of the senior year of our main characters and lara jean and peter are going strong but you know there's a big wide world out there and uh you know there's plenty of movies that are about what happens with the high school sweetheart relationship when they gotta go off to college and we find out there is a plan for them to go to the same school but you know lara jean's kind of wondering is that the right choice should i be you know going to this school just because the boy is over here you know should i be going on a different adventure and i actually found something kind of warm and satisfying about that direction of the story one that i actually did feel like was a good progression from the first one whereas the second one i feel like was just kind of stalling for time almost of like you know drawing uh, out okay. you know this love story to a weird degree uh what what, what did you think though Ashen? Um, well, I'm the opposite on you on the second film in that I think the second one is a noted upgrade from the, the first film, with the exception Nonsense. of I, I, which with the exception that I think the first film is the best directed of these. Like, I don't I don't think the direction is necessarily poor in the second or third film, but it's not quite as strong or not quite as inspired, I think, as the first movie comparatively. But um, otherwise, I think the second movie has a little bit more uh, developed stakes. Like, I think the relationships are a little bit more interesting there. Um, it, it kind of avoids some of the formulas while also playing to some others that I think are amusing. But then again, I have to think back on when I saw the second film and that one I had the chance to see in theaters with an audience. And, you know, I, I got to see, you know, everyone kind of getting sucked into it and, and getting taken by the romance of it. And I am wondering, even though these are, like you said, like kind of comfort food films for Netflix in a good way, that I am wondering if they are kind of meant to be for an audience, like you're kind of supposed to be watching these with a bunch of people and getting sucked into them. But I don't know. I mean, I, I can only speak for the experiences I had. But um, I will say that this movie, I think I similar to you, like I, I was a little uh, put off at first the beginning because like you're, you were suggesting, like this is probably the first time where a trilogy capper has the least amount of stakes in a trilogy. Like this third film, it's mostly 
uh, pretty grounded. Like it, it's established that Peter and Laura Jean are, are pretty settled in their relationship. It's not so much a matter of will they, but rather are they willing to go the extra mile or extra several miles to cement their relationship with long distance? Um, which I think, you know, at first I was kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it just doesn't really seem as interesting to me to, to follow that part of their relationship. But I agree with you that I think once I settled into its groove and, and kind of got along with it, um, I was I was in willing to indulge the film and I think get sucked into it because it is a lot more grounded, a lot more character focused. And it's not quite as playing into some of the contrived stuff that we saw in the first two films. Not to say that it's not without some of that stuff, but I think it's willing to avoid some of those trappings to be a lot more about their central relationship and just kind of focus on their performances. And, you know, like you said, kind of developing some sense of finality to it that that doesn't feel as uh, extensive or trying to like kind of route this out for another film or two. And I, I think by the end, I, I think most of these movies or I, I guess all of them are about the same level in terms of like quality. But I think this one I like a little bit more in the first, but not as much as the second one. But by and large, I think it's they're all pretty decent films and, you know, they're not my favorite trilogy by any stretch of the imagination. But I think what they're able to do, they do well. And that's, I think, primarily thanks to the lead performance from I forget the actress's name, but um, Lana Condor. Lara Condor. And I think she's really the key to these movies working because her performance is so bubbly and endearing and, and, and personable in a way that I think is able to help over like help gloss over some of the shortcomings of the the storytelling and, and make this character feel fully fleshed out and uh, someone you want to root for despite kind of the low stakes that are happening with her character. But yeah, I mean, I think it's fine for what it is. That's pretty much where I land on by and large. I, I think, um, first of all, that it's kind of amusing going to break the fourth wall here that like Abby is sitting here as these two hopeless romantic dudes are like arguing about a romantic comedy. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything, but yes, it is a little <laughs> odd, but that's okay. You yeah. do you. Hey, I mean, but that's, that is kind of indicative of like what I think is really nice about these films is the fact that like, while we were like, Will and I were kind of watching this at the same time because, you know, friendship goals, but it was one of those things where, you know, I'm, we're literally like arguing and like, you know, we're so invested in these characters. Like I'm putting into Google's like, okay, but if she goes to this school, like it's not that long of a drive. Okay. Like without traffic, she can get there. Like it's silly stuff like that, that I think is what endears me the most to this, that I feel like that connection. I think it is because of Lana Condor's performance, but also just the direction of this thing. It doesn't infuse uh, or doesn't force like high stakes into it, but it instead introduces, like Will said, like the, you know, seemingly low stakes of like, okay, well, will this work long distance? And like, are they going to get what they want? But then it adds like some actual layers to it. it. I think those layers come in the form of, we see that like, so far, Peter Kavinsky has been kind of a perfect boyfriend character. He's endlessly supportive. And it hasn't examined too many of his flaws, which I found, you know, that was one of my main criticisms in the second film is like, it's almost like the, the films are too scared to make him because he's so likable. It's like they don't want him to be too much of a jag off. But then in this film, there is this new complexity added of like, there actually is a flaw to how supportive he is. There is a drawback to that. And that's his you know, his abandon, he has abandonment issues and we've, we've, you know, learn a little bit more of like how some of his family life, you know, actually does speak to why he is so loyal, why he is so supportive and how that can actually create a toxic, you know, aspect of this relationship that could poison it. And 
I, I when I was watching the film and that happened, I was like, man, this is a lot more insightful than I was expecting. You know, I was kind of thinking this would be sort of like a victory lapse movie. That's like, we're just going to really cover, you know, the fact that people really like these movies, isn't that fun. And then just have a big party of a movie and that's it. But instead they, they actually took a, a few interesting risks. I mean, it's not a risky movie overall, but I, I still found myself pretty entertained and moved by uh, these crazy kids and what they're gonna what they're gonna do next. I I gotta say this. Is, I think this is a really good trilogy, and I think you're right. Well, that it's uh, they're all three films are pretty similar in quality. So that's that's it. That's that's my full take on this film. I mean, I'm just gonna put my grade out there. I'm a, I am a solid B, like I'm a high B minus. I think the first film B, second film solid B minus, third film high B minus. They're all kind of in the same little zone though. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think moved is a word that that came to mind for me, but I I do think, like you said, there is something weirdly kind of gratifying about being invested in this relationship that feels at this point fairly lived in and sincere. And I I do think that while people give Noah can't is it Cento or how do you pronounce Centineo. it? Centineo. Um, I I think people give him a lot of gruff because he plays kind of the same character in a bunch of things. I mainly haven't seen his other movies outside of this. I think except for um Charlie's Angels, but Perfect Date um, is the other one that I think yeah, I didn't call see back that one. to. Right. But I will say, I mean, like, I, I don't think he's an amazing actor or anything, but I think of the three films, this is probably his best performance. And I think it's partly because, like you said, um, he's given a little bit more grounded stakes. His character's a little bit more fleshed out beyond just being like the, uh, you know, almost comically perfect boyfriend at times to the point where like he, he does kind of feel like this like plush toy of a man that's just like going around and, and like just trying to be hugged and, <laughs> and all this stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, I think. Like I said, like the stuff Sorry, that works. Plush toy of a man is like the perfect description. You like that one? <laughs> Sorry, that was really that was really inspired. Well, well done. Oh uh, well, thank you. But um, like I said, I think I think it's not so much that it's doing a lot better. It's just that I think what works carried over here enough, and they're willing to be a little bit more risk taking in terms of allowing the characters be a little bit more authentic and have some kind of jagged edges here that that make the relationship seem a little bit more sincere by this point in in this, in the trilogy. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think if we're rating all the films, like I think the first one was like a low B minus for me. The second one was a high B minus and this one's a pretty comfortable B minus. Like I, I don't, I think they're all about the same in terms of quality. Like I said, but I, I think this one, I, I was agreeable with it. I think what works about it, I, I was endeared to, but I don't think these movies are really doing much that, that stand out compared to the other. But I think compared to like, from what I've heard, like the kissing booth movies, like this is a little bit more uh, wholesome and endearing. Like I've heard those ones and some of the other ones that, that are meant to appeal to the same audience don't quite work uh, for the those same films reason. just aren't sanitary. If you ask sure. me, that's yeah. Amazing. I mean, especially in COVID times. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's fine. Like I, like I said, I, I don't think I'm going to be thinking back on this trilogy a lot, but I enjoyed my time with them. And like I said, I think it is fun to get a little bit invested in these, these like kind of, uh, you know, endearing, teenagers who just want want to do right by each other and, and want to have a relationship against the odds and you know who am i to stop them i, I hope things work out i don't think it will but you know maybe <laughs> oh, maybe you're honest yeah you, you think it's going to work out for them after this uh, i don't really care i don't i don't sure. think that's the point you know <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> i think the point is that they you know they're going to do what's right for them and they're going to support each other whether they're together or apart and uh, i feel like abby is just like whatever <laughs> What this is, is this? adorable. I'm loving this. We're recording this on Valentine's Day, so this is all yeah, very yeah. appropriate conversation. Absolutely. I just, I just think it's funny that you're just like, oh, I really like this. I'm really invested. And then when I ask you if you care if they get together or stay together, you're just, oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> out of sight, out of mind. 
Yeah. I care more about them individually, the fictive, the fictional characters than I do them as a couple. I don't think they sure. need to be together to be happy necessarily. And I, I yeah. think that is a, one of the, the points of the movie. I think they, they could have made better actually, but sure. regardless, that's why I'm like a B minus on it. Not like a yeah. B, but we're, well, yeah. Likewise. Yeah. Great Valentine's Day movie. Great soundtrack as usual. I mean, I, I did joke with Will a little bit off the air about how like this movie is constantly playing music. Yeah. Like there's literally like a subplot about them finding their song. There's like music when she's walking upstairs. There's music when like just the most mundane things are happening, but at least the music itself is pretty good. So I, you know, I was, I'm not gonna lie. I was saving, I was saving some songs to library. Um, I'll, I'll put it out there. You adding some uh, Oasis to your <laughs> Spotify playlist after this? You know what? I was I was really nervous that that was going to be a really cringe worthy choice, like which Oasis sure. song she's going to play, and I was like, okay, that's okay. They, which that one? Which worse. one is it? That's important. It's it important to me. It <laughs> wasn't Oasis Wonderwall. Song? That's good. I, it yeah, wasn't it was. Wonderwall. It was. Um, I think the first song. I forget the name of it. It's the first song in that album. I think, um, which is always, always gets overlooked. So okay. that's why I was kind of like, okay, you know, I, and it makes sense. It's the first song she plays in the playlist. So mm-hmm. there you go. That's I. I can I can get behind that. To all the boys, always and forever is now available to stream on Netflix. And uh, yeah, I think it's like a, it's definitely a recommendation. If you like the first two movies, you know, you know what the deal is. If you watch the first one and you're like Abby and you're like, whatever, um, it, may, it may not be worth like seeking out necessarily, but uh, I don't think people will be disappointed overall. Uh, and also the film's not too long. It's a little under two hours. Well, let's move on to our next film. So Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Abby, you've been very patient. You had to sit through our entire To All the Boys review, which I'm sure was excruciating. <laughs> um, so for this one, for Barb and Star, go to Vista Del Mar. Let's let's hear it. Set this one up for us. And uh, what, what, what's, uh, what's the deal with this movie? What, what is this thing? Absolutely. Um, so it's... There's there's a lot more going on than the uh, the marketing suggests, as we've as we've mentioned before. So Barb and Star are uh, best friends. Uh, they're played by uh, Annie Mumolo, who uh, co-wrote the script with Kristen Wiig, who plays Star. Um, and they also both worked on the script for uh, for Bridesmaids. They've worked together for a long time. So their I think their friendship and partnership in real life maybe partially mirrors that of Barb and Star in the film, which is part of what makes it so good. But I digress. Uh, Barb and Star are lifelong best friends who live in the small town of Soft Rock, Nebraska, and they have jobs at the hottest spot in town, the uh, Jennifer Convertibles home showroom. Uh, And when that store closes down, they are given a severance package and decide that they are going to go on a vacation to Vista Del Mar, Florida, where uh, a friend has recently been on vacation and came back looking like a changed woman. Uh, so they are going to go to this magical, wonderful place where everybody is friendly and all the men are attractive and they all dress in Tommy Bahama head to toe. Um, that is an actual line from this wonderful gem of a movie. Uh, so they go to Vista Del Mar and kind of try to get their groove back. And at the same time, uh, a spy, uh, played by Jamie Dornan is there carrying out a, um, kind of dastardly plan on behalf of his albino boss, also played by Kristen Wiig, um, who he is in kind of a one-sided relationship with. He wants to be an official couple, and she just kind of keeps stringing him along to get him to do what she wants. Uh, He and Barb and Star... But enough about to all the boys I loved before. Oh, snap. Um, Wow, that was cold. Um, But they, the three of them eventually meet up, and... uh, 
some some romantic rivalry between Barb and Star briefly ensues, but mostly it's about the threat that that poses to their friendship, uh, as well as uh, kind of what it looks like to to have a healthy romantic relationship in your older years. Um, but anyway, all that aside, Barb and Star is a bizarro, wonderful, tropical blue delight of a movie. And I loved every second of it. Maybe not everybody will, but I thought it was great. Yeah, I, you know, I, we were talking about how for Valentine's Day, it's like, why release this movie here? On the one hand, I really wish this movie had come out in like July because it's such a summer movie. On the other hand, this is way more of a Valentine's Day movie than because it covers both aspects of Valentine's Day that I appreciate the most, which is, you know, the obvious like more romantic, heteronormative relationship stuff or homosexual relationship, whatever. Um, but they don't have that in this film. But then also like Galentine's Day. This is like an ideal Galentine's Day movie, I would say. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a fan. What, what did you think of Barb and Star, Go to Vista Del Mar, Will Ashton? And do you have any rhymes to add to the title? I'll see if I can. Um, but yeah, I mean, similar to, to Abby, I, I think going into this movie with, I think, fairly modest expectations was best. Like, admittedly, I, I'd heard from uh, the week this past week that people were really digging it or liking it. But I was still kind of like, I don't know, like just from that first teaser, I was just like, this just seems like an odd sort of thing. I'm not like the biggest Christian Wig fan. I like Bridesmaids. I like MacGruber a lot. And I like Skeleton Twins. But I, I don't remember seeing anything fairly recently with her that that really impressed me outside of like SNL. So I was I was a little concerned about that as well. But I agree. This is uh, it's like basically a blank check film. Like they they basically had 10 years from Bridesmaids to kind of do like one project that was another kind of mid budget thing where they could basically do what they want. And it feels like they took like pretty much every liberty they could just make a very odd, very uh, bizarre kind of um, I I don't want to say high concept comedy because like we're saying it's basically just about friends going on a vacation and just kind of wacky things ensue from there. But there are so many jokes in here that are inspired and just how silly and ludicrous they are in a way that feels very unabashed. Like it's just so willing to be like, look, this is what we're doing. If you want that, have fun. If you're, if you're not going to dig this, we're sorry, but it's very true to itself. I think it, it's has this kind of like Austin powers by way of like Wayne's world kind of vibe to it, like kind of a mix of the two in terms of like tone and silliness. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it feels like a, like, 90s snl movie that came from like another dimension like two or three decades later and it's just like now in our timeline and, and we're kind of just uh left with it in a good way in that like it's such a bizarre little oddity that you kind of have to like decompress a few times and i hope that means uh rewarding rewatches but um yeah i mean i think even beyond just the like inspired kookiness of it the the core chemistry between uh our two leads is just very strong like like abby was saying very palpable by the fact that they are actual friends and collaborators and it doesn't feel insincere in that respect and i can see some people may be annoyed by like kind of the like qc silliness of it but i don't know i was i was in the right vibe with it for most of it and and by and large i was pretty surprised by how much i i was won over by this silly little movie yeah, so uh, we should mention the director of this film is josh greenbaum who has done a few documentaries most of them are like kind of all over the place. Like they're not really what you would expect. Like he did like a James Bond documentary at one point. He, you know, he's done some like TV stuff, like uh, some the, sports uh, behind the mask. He did the Dana Carvey show documentary, I think. Right. To he find did. Yeah. yeah. And he's also done like some TV work too. I think he's directed uh, episodes of a new girl, but um, I think the thing that uh, I, I think is probably most closely related to this is he did a funnier die 
uh, documentary once, um, the Clinton Foundation one, which feels a little bit more in line because otherwise you would be like, this seems kind of random that he'd be doing something like this at this point in his career because um, he hasn't done a ton of narrative work outside of TV. But that said, I think after watching this film especially, uh, he, I, and I don't know how much of it too is like Wig and Mumolo's like script really dictating like the ins- the insanity of this film but i just i do also enjoy like as a director how he just sort of let them make this you know <laughs> you know almost feels like they really like put this film out there and he and he enabled all of that as director and didn't get in the way which is great uh particularly with uh man i love damon waynes jr in this film and jamie dornan because as the guys in the film like the main guys they have like such a hard job of like they have such powerhouse comedic actors who are like so who so easily could have taken this away from the, like anybody else in the film. But what I really enjoy of like, despite Kristen Wiig is like two really great characters. Annie Mumolo is like unbelievably funny here. And then somehow Jamie Dornan is able to come in and kind of do his own thing. You know, he doesn't outshine them by any stretch, but he like, I know he like gets his own sort of like really sincere character that he fully commits to. And then Damon Wayne Jr. has kind of a bit role that like should not be funny the third time. <laughs> And especially the fourth, fifth, and sixth time, but it somehow still is, and it's so indicative of how like endlessly creative they were with these characters. And and I just I needed to see this film. But I this was the uh, my debut review for Awards Watch, and I said this is kind of like the vacation film that we need right now. It's kind of hard watching this film as like my family lives in Florida, so like you know I I like going to Florida, you know, to to, to visit um, and just sort of like spending some time there. The area is different, right? Like, you know, there, there's definitely a, a fun atmosphere. There's a, a vacation sense of mind that I was kind of craving because I get that when I get to visit my family and I haven't gone to visit them in a long time for obvious reasons. And, uh, this, this one was a really nice escape, especially since I, I feel like we haven't gotten, um, the funniest kind of like studio comedies lately. Like the funnier movies we've been getting have been, you know, kind of like, lower budget films although i don't i don't know what the budget for this is i imagine it's not big <laughs> but it, it definitely feels like a film that they really were expecting to be a little bit bigger than it was this is lionsgate by the way but um oh and, and also i will say i do really appreciate the uh the austin power stuff with Kristen wiggs uh villainous character and just the fact that like dr lady i thought was a more intriguing and uh powerful villain than cheetah from wonder woman 1984 I don't know if that says more about this film or Wonder Woman 1984, but there you go. Um, but yeah, uh, Abby, what, what do you think? Um, it sounds like you you like this one quite a bit. What What is it about the comedy here that you think really stands out? Oh, man. Uh, I think the timing of it is is a big deal. Uh, like, I watched this on a Tuesday night after a long day. It was super dreary out. It's still really dreary out. And, like, it's so bright and funny and uncynical and loving in in terms of all of its characters i think that's that's another thing about it that i really like is that it is even even the villains even the bad guys like it's uh it's willing to poke fun at the things that make them ridiculous but it's never mean (laughs) it's never cynical uh like this movie clearly loves everybody in it um and that is it's it's such a fun and lovely vibe when 
that's not the way that the world feels right now. Um, I keep thinking back to like individual bits in that movie that were just so fun and surprising and like, they still make me laugh and they still make me smile. Like I, I realized after finishing watching that, like I'm going to have to watch at least a couple other movies this week and I'm going to wish every single time that I was watching Barb and star instead, just because it made me feel so good. Um, it's yeah. Like the, there are some insane jokes that come out of nowhere. Uh, there are also just, great running bits that uh, are really lovingly understanding of like the details of middle-aged mom core life. Um, I loved every single culotte joke. They were all on point. Um, I loved that there's a, there's a moment where uh, the, the, where the, the central three where uh, Barb and star and uh, Jamie Dornan's character, Edgar get just wildly drunk and high and dance to like a club version of Celine Dion. That's delightful. Um, there, there are just all kinds of wonderful, weird choices that I think work for the kinds of people that they are, um, like the, the, the kinds of characters that are in this movie. Um, but also just people who like weird and strange comedy. Like I, I agree with what Will said. This feels like very much like a, like a really good version of uh, a '90s SNL-based kind of movie, filtered through like maybe a Lonely Island lens. And I, I like as somebody who likes both of those things, this feels like a lovely marriage of the two. Yeah, I was surprised. I was like, "Is this like an SNL sketch that I've never seen? Is that where these characters come from?" And nope. <laughs> also, uh, these women, th- like especially Annie Mumolo's character Barb, she like she's my aunt. Like she looks like my aunt. They have like the same personality and I miss my aunt a lot. She's also in Florida. And I I wanted to, to tell her like, you should see this movie. But then I was like thinking back to like everything that happens. I was like, maybe not. Um, <laughs> uh, but regardless, I, I, I thought it was very, very lovely. Like she even has the coiffed hair. I'm just saying. Um, I don't know if she wears culottes, but. Does she make hot dogs? Uh, yeah. Yeah, not hot dog soup, but she does. She does. <laughs> she would make me like you know hot dog stuff. Like a she'd make me like a hamburger kind of soup. Excellent. Um, yeah, her her cooking wasn't the best. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. It's not as runny it. as Will. it usually is. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, the flashback to the hot dog soup. Um, but yeah, Will. Uh, I I understand. Like th- this is this is a very weird, inaccessible film. Do you think it can be too? inaccessible for people. I know we've kind of talked about that a little bit, but I don't know. Where how are you feeling about it as like a film that's like do you think it's going to find its audience? Yeah, I mean I I think it's deliberately not trying to be everything for everyone. Like I think it it much rather wants to be its own weird little thing, which I admire. I think it's better off for that. Um I don't know how wide of an audience it's going to get because I just don't know how many people will find this as funny as uh, we do, but um I will say I mean it did kind of remind me of like I was wondering, because I didn't really like um, what was the Will Ferrell thing from last year? Eurovision Song Contest. I, 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 I didn't really care for that film, but I know it Don't found an audience. Me. It found an audience because it has kind of a similar vibe and it came out around like this uh, around like this time last year and that like it, it was a kind of depressing time and people wanted something that was like goofy and silly and, and was able to appeal to that, that audience when they needed something like that. And I, I think that might be beneficial for this film for that reason. Um, I, but I don't really know exactly how wide of an audience it's going to be. But like I said, I think the fact that it is fairly true to itself and that it is um, willing to just be whatever weird thing wants to be at any given time and fire in all cylinders and, and just kind of indulge its own sensibilities and instead of following any uh, 
any anything that other audiences might want from this, I guess, is I think for the better. But in the end of the day, I don't really know how wide of an audience is going to be the answer to your question. But I am I curious think, to know, like, well, sorry, what? I'll say real quick then. I, I think that it has something to do with, you know, what streaming service will get this. And I think it's probably between, I know Lionsgate has deals with both mm-hmm. um, Hulu and um, Amazon. Um, particularly like, I think they could put this through like stars, but I think that has a lot to do with it. I think if it's on like Hulu, I don't know how many people will see it. I just, I wish that it was like Eurovision and it could be on something that everybody like watches like Netflix, even though I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I think most of the filmmakers, other films are on Netflix from what I, or sorry, from on, on Hulu from what I can tell. So it makes sense to put it on Hulu, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think either of them would, would do fine. I think it would find an audience that way, but my guess would be Hulu, but who knows? I could see it getting lost on Amazon in a way that it might not on Hulu. It could be a little little easier to feature. Sometimes Amazon has such a huge glut of content that, I don't yeah. know, there's a potential that it might not get seen as readily. But That's I hope true. it gets on streaming yeah. soon. Yeah, I feel like we're still kind of figuring out, like, what is... Because it, it seems like not everything on Amazon really takes off. The things on Amazon that take off seems to be, like, their more original series. Like, things like... um the boys and hunters man in the high castle whereas mm-hmm. like hulu i feel like you know what is the thing that really takes off there that people really talk about is it the movies is it the documentaries that they do i i don't know i i, I don't i don't really know one way or the other yeah i i also am and like i tend to be siloed in my my weird little cult stuff i think that this probably will find an audience uh probably not a wide one, but uh, a pretty dedicated one. Um, I, I would imagine that the same folks on, uh, like on, on the, the film Twitter verse who, uh, who love stuff like, uh, like Popstar and MacGruber, which did not do well in theaters, but have since found a really dedicated cult following are going to be fans of this. And I would not be surprised if that was kind of the ultimate fate of Barb and Star as well. I hope it's not. I hope it does better than that. But I, I imagine that's probably closer to the truth. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of getting to what I was trying to say before is that like it feels like we kind of missed a step where like the movie underperformed in theaters. So I don't know if it's better or worse that it didn't go to theaters, because I, I think visually it's a lot more inspired and, and a lot more creative, especially like all the sets and stuff. I think I would certainly rather see this movie in theaters in terms of like studio comedies than a lot of the other ones that we missed out on. But um, at the same time, yeah, I have to wonder if like would this have just underperformed and that give Lionsgate less confidence in it or the fact that it's available on VOD right now and it's probably going to be a little bit more approachable to some people with the exception of the um $20 asking price which I still think is pretty absurd but that's that's a whole other discussion um yeah, yeah that's a tough pill to swallow yeah but um yeah I mean I, I think it's for the better that this is getting out like you said on Valentine's Day and, and it's available digitally so I think the audience that this was intended for are probably find it a little bit easier than would have in theaters where I think the marketing and uh, just the fact that the movie, like Lionsgate really didn't know how to sell this, which is understandable because I don't know how I would sell it either. Um, they, it did kind of feel like it, it missed that step where it underperformed in theaters. And I, I guess by and large, it's for the better, but also kind of disappointing at the same time. All right, let's get into our final thoughts then and grade this thing. I, I enjoyed this quite a bit. I think it's hilarious. I, I, I don't want to say too much just because the, the thing that I like about it is that it does kind of slowly suck you in. You know, I didn't, I didn't mention this before, but I think like the first 10, 20 minutes aren't the strongest, which I liked because it, it kind of like eases you into the weirdness. It doesn't have like that big tone setting. I mean, it kind of does with like the evil lair stuff, but it's not the funniest part of the movie by any means. I think what I like about it is that it takes a lot of time to get you to really like Barb and Star. 
and it, it takes its time to really like establish like their friendship. And then, then you get to the point where it's like, man, I hope they have a nice vacation. Then the weird, really weird stuff starts to creep in. And then it like, it's almost like it's getting you on the wavelength, um, easing you into it instead of just like, you know, just pounding tons of weirdness at you. And I think that's for the best. Um, it worked for me, obviously, because I was a little unsure early on. I was like, I don't know, this doesn't seem as funny as like people were making it out to seem. But then it's just the jokes per minute just started to like ramp up and get better. And that's like, that's something that comedies tend to not be great at. Sometimes they they front load, sometimes they have sections that are funnier than others. And then this was a pretty consistent stream of, of comedy. And then up until the final moment, I think that it really nails it. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big old B plus on Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. I hope they go back soon for a sequel. Um, what about you, Abby Chessie? I'm a little higher. I'm, I'm an A minus, uh, mostly just cause yeah, this hit at the right time. It provided exactly the things that I needed it to, uh, by the end of the movie, my face hurt from laughing and smiling so much. And I have consistently thought about it and how much I loved it and enjoyed it um, throughout the week. I probably will. I mean, I'm I'm already debating whether or not I'm going to spring $20 to watch it again. Um, I liked it that much. It's it's super weird and funny and sweet. And uh, yeah, it's it's full of unexpected fun that I don't want to I don't want to ruin for people. I agree, John, that it kind of, it starts a little bit slow, but once it hits like, yeah, like the 20, 25 minute mark stuff starts to get weird real fast. And, uh, it, it gets weird in, in a fun way that I think like it's even, it's, it still makes sense for like the structure of the plot too. I think all of it kind of connects, even when stuff feels like it comes out of nowhere, it still connects to like gags that are set up within that first 20 minutes. So it's, yeah, it's, it's really tight. I think tighter than maybe some people might initially recognize just because there is so much weird stuff that comes out of seemingly left field. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm an A minus on this. I, uh, I think this is something that I'm probably going to enjoy in my personal pantheon for a long time to come. Yeah. I definitely can't wait to rewatch this by introducing it to other people. And I'll probably like it even more the second time. Cause I felt like I was missing some jokes because I was laughing from other ones. <laughs> so yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, my estimation of it just continues to rise as time goes on. And I think it'll probably age pretty well. Uh, what about you, Will Ashton? Uh, are, are you as high as us higher? Where are you at? Uh, I don't think I'm quite that high on it, but I did enjoy it a good bit. My only, I guess, point of uh, disagreement is that I think I was sort of the opposite as you, John, that I, I really liked the beginning a lot. Like, I think I was really with it for like the first like 40, 45 minutes. And then the middle of it was where I kind of started to wane a little bit because that's where they had to establish some of the more like plot heavy stuff to establish the third act. And I think that's where I started to kind of lose it. But then by the end, I was pretty won over again by uh, it's like we said, commitment to weirdness and, and the fact that I was willing to just kind of do whatever it wanted to do in any given at any given point, regardless of logistics or uh, any anything that would be uh, in good taste, maybe in other films. But um, I, I do think, yeah, like like we we're saying, I think it works so often because it's so consistently willing to just like up the ante and be as absurd as possible, but also be very sincere and sweet and not really have a, a crude sensibility or anything that that might make it seem off putting or uh, insincere which I think is really a testament to the two lighter, two writers and lead actresses here who are able to kind of communicate that in a way that, with uh, no offense, so I think the director here, I think, who does a nice job, it, it does, like you were saying, John, feel like their movie by and large. And I think uh, it's for the better for that reason. Like I said before, it is like their blank check film after Bridesmaids. And I'm glad they're able to get something like this made from the studio system because I really miss silly comedies like this. 
on this scale and budget. And it's nice to see something like this again, even though it's, it's not in theaters. But yeah, I'd give it a pretty low but comfortable B. I, it's a good time, and I'm glad I checked it out. All right. Well, uh, still pretty solid recommendations from three of us overall. I guess like a B plus average. Uh, that said, I think that's. Uh, th- I do hope that people find this somehow. It is available to rent on demand, and uh, I'm anxious to see it. Uh, hopefully, get to some place like Hulu where people will discover it for sure. Uh, I think that would probably make the most sense. I feel like Palm Springs hit Hulu last year. Also, a really funny movie, the Lonely Island one, and I think that did find an audience eventually. So we're, we're hoping for the best over here. But uh, yeah, Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. It's available to watch right now. So we have one last film, and uh, I'm so sorry, Abby, but Will and I have one more romantic uh, film to talk about. Oh, come <laughs> on, you guys. Romantic teen drama. such softies. Yeah. What, what can we say? It's like, dad movie? Whatever. Chick flick? Let's do it. Meanwhile, um, I'm over here getting ready to fire up Master and Commander for like the third or fourth time. <laughs> so we're, we're switching roles over here. You know what? That's all right. We're the cinema as cinemaholics. We're supposed to defy expectations. That's what we do. Uh, regardless, I, you know, I did really want to check this one out. I had a genuine interest in it, um, only because it was recommended by Felicia Day, who like went out of her way to be like, "Hey, this thing, it's on Amazon right now," and uh, I just was kind of like, "You know what? I, I trust you, Felicia Day. You're, you're the person I, that I go to for my film recommendations." I didn't realize you were in such close connection with Felicia Day. <laughs> But that's good to know. I, I will not make it sound as close connections as you apparently have perceived it. <laughs> um, I am I am I mean, a a fan a fan lost in a sea of other fans. Let's put it that way. Sure. I mean, I'm being facetious, but yeah, that's the way of you course. describe it. Just like, oh, he's like, oh yeah, you know, Felicia, yeah, Felicia Day, Felicia you know, this very up. famous actress and writer. You just uh, we were chatting about these Amazon movies, and this is what came up. <laughs> she was like, hey, look, uh, you know, John, I know you got a lot of other films on your plate this week. No, but I, I genuinely, as soon as I knew that it was kind of a. Uh, I knew it was a sci-fi rom-com. I didn't know like the deal with it, but let's talk about it. So let's talk about the map of tiny, perfect things. This is a sci-fi rom-com temporal anomaly movie. We've got another one on our hands. Uh, we we just talked about Palm Springs, and this year we have. So if Palm Springs was like Groundhog's Day, but you know the kind of like nihilistic rom-com version. This is more of like the romantic drama, actually. Uh, This is like the indie YA coming of age teen version that does have comedy in it, but it's more about, you know, teenagers falling in love, falling in love and, uh, you know, maybe learning some things about life, getting out of their small town, life lessons like that. Uh, This just came out on a prime video. And this is another pretty like comfortable Valentine's Day film. It stars Catherine Newton, who I believe is just being perpetually cast in high school roles. I can't wait for a film to allow her to graduate. And also Kyle Allen, who I think might be a newcomer because I I had never heard of him or I didn't really recognize him before seeing this. Uh, So I don't know if he's been in other things, um, but this is a great introduction for him. And uh, yeah, so the story is we have this guy who is living out the Groundhog's Day format. Uh, It's the middle of the summer. He is in high school. He's supposed to go to summer school, but he doesn't. He just kind of like goes along his life. It's a very chill version of the Groundhog's Day format where he spends his day, you know, like he goes to the library. He, uh, you know, pops in on his friend who plays video games. And it's just kind of like an endless summer, you know. And uh, his, his main goal, though, is he is, you know, he he just wants to get a girlfriend, but it's so hard to find love in COVID. I, I mean, um, excuse me, in a, a, a temporal anomaly, uh, because he just keeps getting rejected over and over and over again. 
and he just can't really get close to anybody. It's like rinse, uh, wash, repeat. And so that's kind of how we're introduced to this character. But eventually he discovers there actually is somebody else in this simulation. <laughs> uh, somebody else is experiencing the same time loop. And that person is played by Catherine Newton. And together they just sort of like live out their existence. And she's a little bit more guarded. You know, he's clearly smitten, but she kind of keeps him at arm's length. And so he decides maybe something that can kind of create a connection with this person. Uh, in our little small town is if we can make this map of perfect moments we find in town on this one day of the summer. And I'm just going to say, this is a very effective, charming, and sweet little movie, very unassuming, and I really enjoyed it. So uh, what, what about you, Will? Uh, did, did this one warm your cold, steely heart? It did. No, I, I liked it. I, I have a soft spot for time loop movies, I guess, with the exception of Palm Springs, which I liked, but not quite as much as you two and a few other critics. But um, I don't know. I just there's something about like this premise that it is like very bizarre and, and you can have you know a lot of fun playing with the, the time loop premise and, and do something that, that has a concrete structure, but gives wiggle room to play around and do some cheeky, silly things. And uh, I don't think this one does anything particularly new or inventive in terms of uh, that approach but i think what works here is are the um two lead performances from like i said cal allen and uh catherine newton um cal allen I, I haven't seen anything from him before but i think he was on american horror story and the path the h the, the hulu show so he does have some tv background i'm just this is the first uh starring role i think of his so okay i just missed him yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I haven't seen anything from him before this, so this is my my first exposure to him as well. But I think they have a really solid chemistry in here. It doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel insincere outside of the um, kind of plot conventions and stuff like that. But um, I, I do think they have a kind of nice uh, meet cute little thing going on, and they're able to communicate a nice kind of friendly, semi romantic relationship that that is very fun and playful. But also there there are some kind of bubbling sincerities to it that I think are credit to the. Uh, two performers here, the two performers here, especially Catherine Newton, who, like you said, uh, in a kind of ironic fashion is being held back by these like kind of high school roles, uh, being perpetually playing these type of roles. But I am excited to see her do more leading role stuff. We also saw her in Freaky a few months ago, and I think she's really proving herself to be a pretty versatile actress who's able to do a lot of different genres and tones really well. And this is no exception. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a lot to this that is you know, especially unique or anything that would make it better than some of the other time loop movies we've gotten recently. But I think what it does well, it does pretty well. And uh, I had a good time throughout. Yeah, I think I think the reason this one sticks out to me a little bit more than I guess I was expecting is just because, first of all, I didn't know it was a time loop movie until it started. And, you know, it, it kind of went through its thing. I was like, oh, OK, time loop movie. Sure. Why not? And I think my worry about it was that it was going to be, you know, kind of like some other films I've been hearing that are YA coming of age, like Ultimate Playlist of Noise, uh, last year's like All the Bright Places, like these films where teens are just going through it, you know, they have all of these big pressing social issues like climate change and, you know, which is brought up in this film about how like, you know, the youth these days don't feel confident about their future because they're being handed like a list of, you know, really awful crises. Yeah, like spontaneous too. Yeah, spontaneous is a great example of that. Yeah. And what I what I like about this film, though, is that it really rounds out a lot of that like hopelessness with um, I thought some interesting commentary on you know okay like what is it like in this day and age to feel like you're stuck in your town to feel like you're 
you're an outsider. You're kind of like a castaway at, at one point they refer to. And it feels like the one person you want to connect to just isn't really there. And I think the, to what you were saying before, one of the reasons they work as characters who come together is because they they aren't just romantic foils. I think that there is a case to be made that there's something platonic that really draws them together as well. So you don't you don't feel like there is this some sort of like insincerity from Catherine Newton, who is clearly resisting like intimacy. There actually does seem to be a pretty grounded reason for, you know, her motivations. And, you know, I think that the difference in their personalities is also a little bit more against type than you would expect, particularly he's, he's very artistic, but you know, he's not the stereotypical artistic kid. He's not dramatic. He's not trying to be Timothy Chalamet. There's, there's not this like weird, you know, he just feels like a kind of a normal kid who's really good at drawing, who doesn't have the biggest ambitions, but he's just kind of like trying to get by. And like, he felt like a high schooler to me. And I thought with the same thing with Catherine Newton's character, I think that she feels like uh, somebody in this moment in time who who is trapped but wants to be trapped almost. And I don't know, I thought something about their dynamic was it's not the most original thing in the world, but I think that it's more interesting in how it's written. It's fresher in how it is like, you know, kind of like coming together than anything else. So yeah, I, it, I was surprised that there was this much to chew on with this movie. And I think some people will watch it and that stuff will probably not really register with them because they're not looking for it or because it's just hitting me in a different way. But no, I, I, I was kind of affected by what this film was trying to say. And I appreciate this sort of like the synergy of the metaphors here. I actually think they're kind of, it's elegantly done. And it's the same kind of thing I was saying for Palm Springs. They're, they're finding really good connective ways of like making the time loop genre become, you know, something bigger than Groundhog's Day. This, this is one of those films that references other time loop films, which I don't mind. I know, Will, you, you don't love that as much, but I think, uh, I think there's an argument to be made on one side of like, we're getting too many of these, you know, there have been a lot in the last decade. And then there's another side of this Speak that's saying, well, Say, say again? I said, speak for yourself. Oh, in terms of we're getting too many of these? Yeah, I'm, I'm not yeah. saying that as my opinion. I'm saying that sure. as like, there. I know a lot of people who hate this. Um, yeah. You know, there are critics I really appreciate who are like, I just don't want this movie, this type of movie to be made anymore because I'm sick of it. And then there's this other side, which I, I am more favorable to, which is that, you know, this is becoming a subgenre, more of a subgenre unto itself. You know, it isn't just sort of like ripping off a premise at this point. I do think it is its own genre, and I think that it's perfectly uh, acceptable for other films to do something with it. And I think that they're doing it, they're doing creative things with it, like you were saying. Well, not the most creative things with it, but uh, creative nonetheless. So, uh, what, what do you think, though? Do you think that this is a, do you think all that uh, works for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think like you're saying, like, I think we're getting to the point now where we're not just doing Groundhog's Day all over again. Um, we, we, it still is to an extent, but I think we're starting to move past that. We're kind of getting a little bit deeper in terms of like what we can do with a time loop type movie. And uh, I don't think we're fully there. Like it, it, it does kind of seem to be stuck in a rudder, I guess, fittingly. But um, I, I do think, like you said, like there's there's room for kind of interesting ideas to be explored therein. And uh, I mean, I don't think what this movie is doing is particularly deep in terms of like, you know, recognizing the little things in life that you can appreciate. Like, I mean, that's something that I think a lot of people already have seen in other films. And I, I think the execution of it is what's key here. Like we said, the performances work. And I think there is a, a palpable chemistry there that, that feels pretty honest. And the characters feel pretty well lived in and sincere in that way. But um, the screenplay as well, I, I believe Lev Grossman is a uh, novelist and I think a former uh, book critic. Right recall reading that correctly um so he comes in with a different background he he, he approaches yeah, this, this is material based on a this yeah. is based on a short story and so lev grossman wrote the short story and then mm -hmm. also did the screenplay 
But I think there's like a little bit more interest in terms of like fleshing out these characters in a way that maybe other films would just kind of settle for different things. Whereas I think the screenplay is a little bit more interesting and in, in being a little bit more uh, enriched in a certain way and, and having a little bit more depth to these characters while not being overly complex or, or slowing the film down in any way. Because there is a particular pacing to this film that I think is pretty commendable in terms of, you know, communicating a good number of things, but not having to slow down the film in order to say those things. Um, but like we said, like, I don't, I don't think this is doing anything particularly noteworthy outside of that, but that's not to say that this movie needs to do all that much to work. I think it's appealing enough on its own and especially at a streaming release, I think it works, but it's not one I think I'm going to be thinking about revisiting a lot later on, but for the time I had watching it, I had a good time. Same here. Same here. I'm, I'm a low, but confident B on this movie. Uh, I think that it, it is pretty effective and I, I find myself, uh, kind of, you know, not anxious to recommend it, but like, I do think it's the kind of film that I feel comfortable recommending uh, to people as they're sort of asking, you know, people I know who do like these kinds of films, I think that they'll, you know, if you're, you know, keen on this type of drama and this type of like schmaltzy romance that, yeah, like you're saying, is not that noteworthy in, in other ways, I think there's a lot to appreciate here. So I think that uh, in that sense, it's a good crowd pleaser kind of film. And uh, I hope it, it does great things for both of the lead actors. I think that like Catherine Newton's already on an ascent and she just, you know, I think is like one breakout roll away from really taking off in her career. But I, I like Kyle, Kyle Allen in this. I, I think that he's he, he does a good job. He really holds his own. And uh, I, I'd like to see more of him, you know, in a lot of other work. I could see him being really prominent on even more TV stuff, in fact. So, yeah, solid B for me. Yeah, I'm not too far from where you are. I think I'd give it a high B- minus overall, just because, like I said, I don't, I don't think this is one that really breaks the mold or does too much that, that makes it stand out compared to other time movies. And when I think back on stuff like Cappy Death Day and uh, Palm Springs and stuff like that, I think I like those movies just a little bit more in this one overall. Um, but that's not to say that this is doing anything poor or wrong. If anything, maybe if we hadn't gotten those those type of films, I, I might have gotten a little bit more out of this, but I can't really say for sure. But like we said, I think we're getting to this point now where it is basically a genre in and of itself. And uh, I don't know if that means we're going to get more movies that just kind of do a similar thing in different genres or if we're actually going to get a little bit meatier in terms of the approach. But I'm definitely down. Like I said, I, I like time, time loop movies a lot, and I, I enjoy these type of high concept uh romances so i'm down for it whatever happens i'm i'm here for it yeah i think we've, we've gotten like the action of this you know the like i guess action and war we've gotten horror we haven't gotten like supernatural horror like a haunted house time loop movie i'd kind of like to see that that could be fun um so abby you know we We've obviously talked about this movie quite a bit. I'm sure you've already written down, you know, some notes on like why you probably won't check it out. But if I could sway you, um, in case you need to be swayed, Josh Hamilton from eighth grade does play the dad in this. I and did see that, and that was appealing to me. So that might be the thing that does it. Is it? Is it significant? Is he around? To see it? <laughs> it's not the reason he's to see it. it? Yeah, because he's not in it that much. But I'm not going to okay. oversell it. I don't want you to be disappointed. But he okay. he, he does doesn't give his son a heartfelt speech. He does, <laughs> yeah, no, he, but it's, oh, he does. He does, but it's it doesn't go the way you might think. So uh, okay, you, know, you may have, you may have to report back to us on that one. Okay, I'm you, I'm there. I'm into it. Take it. I just love Josh Hamilton. He's just such Me an awful guy. Yeah, you know. Wish he was. I love my dad, but I wish he was my dad. I, if I could have two dads, I'd ask Josh Hamilton. Um, but there you go. Win a dad with Josh Hamilton. Oh, that's a good. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. Good reference. Um, that's fun. 
but I appreciate that. I, I, I accept it fully. Um, but okay, that'll do it for our show. Thank you everybody for listening. And, uh, I did forget to say, um, although I did say at the outset, map of tiny perfect things is available to watch right now on Amazon studios and it's only an hour 39 minutes, but yeah. It's time to close out the show. Next week, we are going to talk about Minari, Land, and a few other things, a few other uh, interesting releases. And uh, we won't talk about Nomadland since we did already have a discussion. It's it's hitting a wider release, but I think uh, we, we already talked about it a couple months back, so you can find that review in the archives. But uh, before we go, Abigail Chessie, is there anything you're working on that you'd like to uh, plug for us this week? Sure. Um, I will have a feature out on Think Christian about movies to watch during Lent, if that is a thing that you are wanting to observe. And if you want to observe it with movies, uh, that's that's a pretty good hookup. Uh, I'm also on the uh, Think Christian podcast this week uh, talking about two movies, uh, The Night of the Hunter, which probably comes as no surprise to anybody who's met me ever, and uh, The Velocipaster, which might. Um, it's It's great. I like them both. Uh, so yeah, that's that's me. Two very similar films, I have to oh, say. Oh, very, uh, yeah, yeah. There's a surprising amount of overlap. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, what about you, Will? Anything uh, going on this week you want to let the listeners know about? That I I not to harp on this before, but that just made me realize I've seen Velocipaster, but I haven't seen Night of the Hunter, <laughs> which uh, I unfortunately I think uh, is, oh, is a Will Ashton problem. But that's, um, that's okay. My my buddy Jr. had not yeah. seen it yet either before we did the podcast, so there's plenty of time yeah. to rectify that. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just wrote a review of Land not too long ago. Um, that's on the Cinemaholic site right now if you want to check that out uh, before our conversation about next week. Uh, I, I wrote up my thoughts there and uh, hopefully have some more Sundance stuff coming shortly. So look out for that. Sounds great. Sounds great. Um, I'm going to be on the uh, Global Film Podcast this week uh, with Diego Andaluz, and uh, I think somebody else is going to be on the show, but I'm not sure yet. Uh, we're going to be talking about Minari and I Care A Lot, and I think also Nomadland. Uh, so yeah, keep your ears peeled for that if you've ever, if you're, if you don't know, um, it's called Global Film Podcast. You can check that out. Uh, really great show. Diego is awesome. And uh, I, I've also got a bunch of reviews out this week. I, I mentioned my Barb and Star one that came out on Awards Watch. Really excited to start writing for them. I've also got uh, a review of Bliss. So if you're curious why I really did not like that film, um, you can find my review for that on The Spool. Uh, I wrote a review of Land as well on The Young Folks, along with uh, Judas. my review of Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, lots of reviews this week. My goodness. Um, need to take a little bit of a break. But uh, yeah, good good productive week. Let's, uh, let's finish out um, this weird first half of February that is just like tons and tons of movies and then i feel like we're gonna get to a week where we're gonna we're gonna miss these days and we had a lot to choose from <laughs> it's like a spoil of riches almost but uh yeah so we'll see you all next week from the internet california i am john agroni from the internet pennsylvania i'm will ashton from the internet kansas city i'm abby olchesi see you next time